haints, boogers, ghosts, animal encounters, medical emergencies, strangers and weirdos, unexplained events, really disturbing murders, dangerous weather, and more. All of these things are included on my 20 most terrifying moments in the woods list. And I'm about to share that with you, but first we have to do the musical introduction. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Practical Woodsman. I'm Rut, the creator and host of The Practical Woodsman. That's right. It's my genius which has brought this all into existence. First of all, on this conversation about the 20 most, my 20 most terrifying moments in the woods, I'm not going to do any of the gimmicky cliches that you're probably all used to. You know the ones I'm talking to. I mean, they, they pull out every psychological trick in the book. Have you ever been caught in a video like on YouTube or on Facebook or something and 20 minutes pass and you find yourself saying, how the heck did I get roped into this? I'm not even interested in this, but I, I can't pull myself away from it. Well, they're using all kinds of psychological tricks. I mean, even if you'll notice like a lot of people doing a video like this, they would cut forward, cut back cut forward I mean up close and then pull back up close pull back why do they do that there's psychological tricks to keep you engaged it's for a population that's been conditioned to not be able to survive without stimulation for longer than you know, 13 seconds or something like that so I'm not going to be using any of those tricks during this conversation I'm not going to be speeding through these uh, or you know using these these psychological tricks to try to keep you interested. That's just not the nature of my show. The nature of my show is all about slowing down for an hour, having a real conversation just like you and I are sitting around the campfire and talking. I want it to be as natural as possible about an interest that hopefully you and I both share, and that is the woods. When it comes to doing a show about terrifying things happening in the woods I had to really think hard about it and I'll tell you why it's because the woods is the place where I feel the most comfortable at all actually when I go out into the woods and I'm gonna be out there for a week or so and I'm not gonna see civilization or anything uh, it's not fear that I feel what I feel instead is oh, I mean I just feel the stress of the world go off my shoulders and I feel like I'm back home when I'm in the woods. So when I sat down to think about have, have terrifying things ever happened to me, do I have any terrifying experiences of being out in the woods? Um, the answer is yes. I've got 20 of them at least, probably more, but they didn't leave any scars on me. And the reason for that is because, I mean, if you're gonna have a terrifying experience, what a better place to do it than in the environment where you're you're the most relaxed and you feel the best about things, right? It's the cities and large crowds where I feel most out of place and at a disadvantage. So what this means is that even when I have these terrifying experiences in the woods, they don't have any terrible lasting effect on me. 
I can think of infinitely more terrifying things that relate to being in any major city in the world that to me are much, much worse than anything that can happen in the woods. The reality is that life in general is dangerous. And we share the planet with all sorts of other dangerous and scary people and scary things, don't we? In the face of that reality, what most of us have learned to do is just take reasonable precautions against those things, right? It's interesting that it's only been for a relatively short amount of time that we as people have been able to live with a relatively low level of concern for our safety and just like normal everyday life. So take this into consideration while we have this discussion today if you're a city slicker who doesn't have a lot of experience with the woods. In fact, some of the things that I put on my list of scary things will probably be more scary to you than they were to me when I was experiencing them. A fear of the woods or, you know, the reality of scary things happening from time to time in the woods is not a reason to live with an underlying fear of the woods in general or to avoid the woods in general. Like I say, what happens in the cities probably every night of the year involves things that are much more terrifying than most of us even care to know about, but so far hasn't caused you to pack up your bags and move to a deserted island, has it? Before we get into the top 20 most terrifying moments that I have experienced in the woods, let, let me make a couple of announcements. First of all, you'll, you're, you'll hear a hum there in the background. That's my air conditioner. It's still summer folks and I just ain't willing to flip off the air conditioner to do this show so I hope that uh, you will tolerate that hum in the background as we have this conversation I mean if if I do my job well enough maybe you'll even forget that hum is back here video content so if you're just listening to this show the podcast version of this show uh, then you're not you're missing out on all the video content that I also share and uh, of course you'd have to be to subscribe to the practical woodsman on either YouTube or rumble I like to encourage people to use Rumble because its mission statement it revolves around free speech, and I like that. I like the idea of not being censored for things that nobody has any business censoring me about. Locals. I have an online community set up there on the Locals platform for you folks who like these sorts of discussions and would like to be active there and participate and sharing your own stories and stuff. Uh, you can join by going to The Practical Woodsman. Dot locals.com or you can download the locals.com app from the app store and just search for the practical woodsman within the app there love to see you over there number 20 we're going to count backwards that's the only gimmick i'm going to do is i'm going to count backwards from 20 to, to 1 but i will say this these are not in any certain order so it's not like 20 is the least terrifying thing that I've experienced, nor is number one the most terrifying thing I've experienced. I've got them in no particular order. This is just the way that I, they made it to paper, all right? Number 20 of the most terrifying moments in the woods for me was a mountain lion encounter in Yosemite National Forest. And what I had done is I was with my friend uh, Jim. And Jim and I and our wives at the time, and my ex-wife, had gone up to the top of the falls there in Yosemite, and then Jim and I left the girls there. That was a, quite a bit of a hike, but we had left the girls there, and we decided to go ahead and continue up further. And so we were about an hour, two hours up further past the falls. Jim and I were talking, and when you get up that high in elevation, you get a lot of bald, bald areas. 
up on the top of the mountain. So there's lots of these bald areas up there, but then there's also sections where there are uh, pine there's pine growth there. So you've got these small sections of forest, but mostly it's bald all around. And uh, we were lost in conversation as we were hiking up through there, just the two of us. We'd left all the crowds behind. I mean, it was just the two of us. And as we're walking, we're talking, uh, we're involved in some kind of story or conversation. And hiked into this, this wooded section, and I was looking ahead, and Jim was looking down at his feet. Almost as soon as we walked in there, right up ahead of us, and I'm, I'm going to say, oh, I reckon 20 feet away or so, very, very close, was the biggest mountain lion I have ever seen in my life. This was not like a, a, a wild cat or a, just a feral cat or anything like that. This mountain lion was the size of an African lion. Enormous. And it's amazing the details that can stick with you when things are happening so fast like that. But what I remember from that experience was as soon as I saw her, what stood out in my memory, she was crouched, looking ahead, so looking away from us looking in the direction actually that we were hiking and she was crouched sort of like a house cat like if you've ever seen a house cat trying to sneak up on on another house cat the way they crouch like that the sunlight was coming through the forest canopy through those pine trees and hitting her on the back and it was enhancing just the muscles in those shoulders on her back while she was crouched and sneaking up on something i don't know what it was i didn't stick around to find out but the reason why it was so terrifying was because if you're just if you go to the zoo and you go to look at the at the lions you're you're not feeling particularly terrified or anything like that because you know that the you're not in any danger there is a barrier right there and you're confident that the lion can't get through that barrier now imagine being in a zoo no crowds no nothing just by yourself and now imagine being that close to a lion and there not being any separation between you and her like there is nothing between you and that lion so the vulnerability i felt was just off the charts now i managed to keep my cool and i think that that is probably like i said i feel the most comfortable in the woods now you put me in a city and you put me into a, an emergency or something like that, I might not be able to keep my cool like that. I might not know what to do. I might be running around like a chicken with its head cut off. But probably due to the fact that I feel so comfortable in the natural world, I kind of had an instinctual idea of how to handle that situation. And I, I put my hand out, stopped my friend Jim from walking, and I just whispered under, under my breath, I said, Cat, cat. And I pushed him back, and he stopped talking immediately, which is probably a good thing. And we just walked backwards, and I kept my eyes on that lion, did not make any sudden moves. And while keeping my eyes dead set on her, we backed out backwards, walked backwards, back out the way we had come. And when I tell this story, I think people would probably think that I, I'm getting creative with it, but I, I'm, I'm not lying when I say that as soon as we got out and I felt like we were a safe distance away from that lion, my knees started knocking together just like you see in the cartoons. Like I, I could barely keep myself standing. That's how the adrenaline after the moment 
affected me. My knees were shaking like crazy and I felt like I could barely stand up. If you've ever been the owner of a house cat, you know what stimulates them, you know what will just kick their instincts in and make them react. And so that was probably very helpful too, the fact that I have been a cat owner at multiple times in my life. Her coat, you know, the coat collar is kind of a golden yellow. She blended in real good to that forest, that small forest with the rocks and the brush and everything all around. She just kind of fit right in. So it's probably a minor miracle that I saw her as soon as, as, soon as we walked in there, I saw her. The guy I was with, Jim, uh, did not see her at all, and he's very disappointed about that because only I can really tell the story, can't I? Most terrifying moment in the woods, number 19. Medical emergencies. My buddy Jeff's near heat stroke several years ago. And you folks have heard me talk about this before, but bears repeating. It was terrifying. There's some pros and cons to being by yourself. If something were to happen, you, you've got nobody there to help you, right? One of the biggest pros of going by yourself is that you're not responsible for anybody else either. When you're going with somebody else, you can't control them. However they want to hike, whatever they want to do, if it's responsible or if it's irresponsible, if it's smart or if it's dumb, you've really got limited control over other people. And we were on this backpacking trip on our second or third day, and he had been dieting. It was about 100 degrees outside. And I think he was feeling all athletic and everything. So when we got up on that day and started down the trail, we only had like five miles or something like that to go. And I kept reminding him, listen, we can take our time. We can take as much time as we want today. We will get to where we're going. We don't have any anything really complicated to do. There's no enormous ascents or anything like that that we've got to do. So we don't have to be running down the trail. There's just no reason for it. Why don't we just really take our time and enjoy the journey today? Well, because he's feeling young and and uh, strong and and proud of himself for for this workout or this you know this health kick that he was on, he wanted to just charge down the trail as fast as he possibly could. And again, I kept telling him, listen, we don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. But I would I just let him go. I mean, as I say you're very limited as to the control that you have over other people. I can suggest don't hike that fast. I can't make him not hike that fast. It was like 100 degrees and very high humidity. And so he got very far ahead of me. And I, I even lost sight of him, but I thought, well, I'll come up on him. But I was just taking my time, as I usually do. And I started coming down this long mountain range. And when I got to the bottom, there he was at the bottom, uh, looking in bad shape. His, his skin, here, here's how we knew that he was entering heat stroke, was that it was so hot, he'd been hiking so fast, and yet he wasn't sweating. He, he was as dry as could be. And kind of talking gibberish, like he's kind of out of his mind, I'm like, man, this is not good. This is not good. We're out in the middle of nowhere. I'm kind of, well, frustrated with him for doing this to himself because really it affects me too, doesn't it? I mean, that, see, that's the thing I'm talking about. The more people you get, the dumbest one in the group, and I'm not, I'm not calling my friend dumb, I'm just saying as, as a matter of principle, the dumbest person in the group, his decisions and behaviors will have an effect on everybody in the group. If something goes wrong, the group becomes responsible for 
trying to fix the, the problems that the dumb one has created or trying to save his life and things of this nature. So it's really a trade-off. You know, I love going with other people, but I like going by myself too. And so that's the situation I found myself in. I tried to get him. I looked around, and uh, we had the fortune of being right next to some caves. They were actually rock outcrops, but they come out so far that it created like a cave effect in the middle of this forest. I was able to get him up underneath there. It was probably 20 degrees cooler. I mean, as soon as you got up underneath those rocks up into that cave. And then once I got him laid down and everything, I started doing some exploring around there. And um, it had been a really dry season. So it was pretty difficult finding water on that trip. But I started exploring around this cave system and I started finding puddles of dried up creek bed and the water inside of them was still freezing cold so I wanted him to submerge himself in these pools of freezing cold water he wouldn't do it again that's the thing I'm talking about now he pulled through this so I'm happy for that but I was actually in that situation having a a battle in my mind like should I just grab him and force him into the water it could mean his life what will that mean though I mean it could ruin our friendship right if he 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 could not like being grabbed and thrown around and stuff like that I also thought about what just scooping up some water and throwing it on him pouring it over his head or something whether he wants it or not but it's a it's that kind of battle that you're kind of stuck in when a situation involves another adult free agent like, uh, you know, you, you really can't make decisions for him, and you're kind of torn about, well, should I act or should I not act? Is he in enough of his right mind to be making these decisions for himself, or is he not? It, it was really a struggle for me in that situation to know what to do. He napped for, I think it was like five hours. Five hours he had to stay in there before his body started regaining equi- ec- uh <laughs> see if my Appalachian accent can handle this equilibrium equilibrium is that how you say it so uh, we we did manage to get through it once he woke up during that time while he was napping you know I was checking on him the whole time making sure he was alright continuing to make sure he was alright but also what I was doing was I was trying to map out uh, the easiest way out of that forest to a, a road and uh, which involved bush bushwhacking and that's what we eventually did. Number 18, most terrifying moments in the woods for me. And this involves haints and boogers. You fellers know what haints and boogers are. Haints are ghosts, and boogers is Bigfoot. Last week, I think I told you, it's about the time that we took an old Army pup tent, cotton canvas Army pup tent, out uh, about a mile back in the woods. And my brother and I slept out in that tent the entire summer long. Every night when it was time for bedtime, we'd say so long to the folks and we would head out to that tent and it was just me and my brother and I think I was 10 years old at the time, something, very young. And we had all sorts of experiences that summer, which, you know, you'll, you'll hear me talk about that summer some more, I'm sure, in future episodes. But one thing that stood out to me was that my brother and I weren't scared. <laughs> you think about 10-year-olds sending them out into, you know, a mile back in the woods by themselves into a tent and you'd think that they would just be terrified well the woods were such a part of my life even at that age that I felt so comfortable I I was not scared my brother was not scared 
Now, we had moments of being scared, as I'm about to tell you. My dad come out. So we had gone out to the tent. We were winding down to sleep, and my, and my dad showed up. So he had walked out there just to say goodnight to us and everything. And he sat outside the tent while we were inside the tent, and we were just talking, and he was telling stories about when he was our age and stuff like that. And he told us a story about a haint that he saw when he was, uh, he was an older kid at the time. He had a bunch of brothers and sisters, something like nine brothers and sisters. They would do the same thing. They grew up in the same setting of being out in the middle of the Appalachian woods and stuff. And He said they all were out in the woods one night doing the same thing that my brother and I were doing, uh, sleeping like that all summer long in a tent at a camp that they had set up in the woods. In the middle of the night, my dad rolled over awake and was looking out the tent or out the camp where they were all sleeping. And he looked down oh, down over the holler. For those of you who don't know, a holler is like where the hills come down and meet at the bottom. So when you're talking about down in the holler, you're talking about down at, at the bottom of where two mountains or hills uh, come down and meet in the middle. It's like a wedge, right? And typically what you'll have down at the, at the bottom of a holler is water. You'll have running water like a stream or a creek. And that was the, the case here down at the bottom of the holler. There was a, a creek, and then there was kind of like a plateau area before the other mountain began to rise. And he said he was looking down through there in the middle of the night, one, two o'clock in the morning, something like that, on a full moon night. And uh, he saw a woman, he saw an apparition, dressed in like flowing robes and stuff like that. And uh, he said that she was, it was as clear as day he was looking at her and she was walking through the woods like not noticing him and his brothers and sisters were still asleep uh, as he's watching she she turned and looked up at him and saw him and she began to walk toward him and had to stop at the creek and that's the folklore from around these parts is that a haint can't cross moving water I'll tell you my father was not prone to these sorts of stories like if, if he were telling a story of something that truly happened when he was a kid um, he, he, w he wasn't lying to us he really did see what he says he saw he really believes he saw what he saw and even when he was telling a story I could tell that he felt kind of foolish telling us like even his own children aren't going to believe this story you might say well how does this fall into your list of scariest things that's happened to you in the woods because when he left that night I'm stuck with that story in my head. And so for like the next three nights, I'm a mile back in the woods in this tent. Cannot get this story out of my mind of this haint that spotted my dad watching her in the middle of the night. And so it was pretty frightening. It was pretty terrifying for the next several nights to be lying there recalling in my mind the story that my father had told about that haint. And in fact, the place where my father was telling me that he was sleeping that night I had been to so when he's telling the story I knew exactly where he's talking about in the woods and when he's talking about looking down over the holler and the creek down there and everything I, I mean I knew exactly what he was talking about and I could see in my mind's eye the full moon white op apparition down in the woods so it was pretty terrifying now here's what I want to say about Hans and boogers I do believe in the spirit world 
I'm a religious person. I'm a God-fearing person. I believe in the, the spirit world, angels, demons, and, and spirits of the spirit world. I do not believe in ghosts. I don't believe in haints. I told you I believe this story, and what I mean by that is I don't believe it was a dead person. I don't believe it was a ghost. I believe it was a spirit, uh, an evil spirit, make itself, making itself visible to my dad and, and uh, playing some orneriness on him. The reason why I feel like I need to explain that to you now is because that's going to be an important detail for you to know about me later on in this conversation. How about boogers? Do I believe in boogers or Bigfoot? Do I believe in Bigfoot? Um, that's something I can't be dogmatic about. I, I did have an experience one time where I looked down into the woods and I did think that I saw something like that. And to set the stage for you, I was taking a nap in the woods. This is something I did all the time. I'd take a book and just to get away from everybody and to be by myself and to be able to just ex enjoy the natural world, I'd go back miles back into the woods prop up against a tree and fall asleep out there I'd wake up sometimes it'd be dark and I'd have to walk back home in the dark it was that kind of setting I had taken a hike back into the woods on uh, a summer day and I'd gone into the coolness of the woods had found a tree way out there in an area that I had never been into before propped up next to a tree with I think a comic book um, I think, in fact, I think it was an Astro Boy comic book. Fell asleep, woke up uh, several hours later, and I was getting up, and I still kind of had the sleep in my eyes and everything, and kind of brain fog. And I was looking down the holler, and uh, it was just a lush green forest, and I did see what looked like a very large man-like figure move between two trees, and it happened just so fast that I had to like rub my eyes to see if. It was I just seeing things. But it happened so fast. I, I told my brother and cousins about that, and they thought I'd just, you know, pull their chains. But I did believe at that time that that's what I saw. I don't have any explanation for it. And I'll tell you something else. I went to the zoo, the Columbus, Ohio Zoo, and they have a placard when you're at the zoo. I couldn't believe this. It said that scientists believe that they have yet, yet to discover 99% of life on earth now think about that I'm sure that what they're referring to there mostly involves like microscopic life and stuff like that maybe deep ocean life but you think about all the things that we do know exist all of the creatures and the things that we do know exist and scientists estimate that everything we do know as far as living things on this planet, only make up 1% of what's actually alive on the earth, of what we're actually sharing the earth with. So that's why I say I can't be dogmatic. I joke about boogers, not nose boogers, Bigfoot boogers. You know, I, I joke about Bigfoot all the time. And I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that such a thing exists, but I can't be dogmatic and say that for sure, for sure they don't exist, just given the fact that there's just so many unknowns about about this planet still all right number 17 most scariest terrifying moments in the woods for me yotes that's what we call coyotes and some people said it's funny how you say coyotes so some people call them coyotes but for me they're yotes or coyotes 
that is a terrifying experience and I'm not talking about the fear of being attacked by them what I'm talking about instead is the scariness I, I reckon I'd say of being woke up by them in the middle of the night because they are spooky you've heard me talk about this before just went on this backpacking trip with these new newbies never been out in the woods before in the middle of the night I heard the yotes up up coming down around the ridge and down through the dark woods and I was very happy that they got to experience that because it's it's a kind of a singular experience to hear the oats all yapping and cooing and ho- hollering at each other. It has such a spooky sound. I was talking to the fellow there who was with me. His name's Seth. He says, what is that? And I looked over at him. I could see that he was just, you know, kind of spooked. And uh, I chuckled. I said, what, do you, what does it sound like to you? He says, it sounds like a bunch of babies crying. Now imagine that. If you're with a group of people, maybe that's not too scary to you. But imagine being all by yourself out in the middle of the deep, dark woods. In the middle of the night, you wake up to what sounds like ghostly babies crying. It's so out of place. It's actually, it's, it can be terrifying. So I let him sweat it out for a little bit, and I told him it was the, the coyotes. All right, number 16 of the most terrifying moments in the woods for me. Widowmakers and other unexplained sounds. Y'all know what a widowmaker is? That's a tree or a tree branch that'll fall and kill you in the middle of the night. Or during the day, it doesn't matter. And there, it's a real thing. So you never go into the woods and just plop down on the ground and go to sleep. You know, I'm not opposed whatsoever to sleeping right under a big old tree. But uh, you definitely want to look up anytime you do that and make an evaluation is the tree itself alive or dead and are the branches up in it alive or dead you don't want to be anywhere underneath a dead branch or a dead tree they can fall at any time and they have while i've been out in the woods i mean they're they create a crash like you wouldn't believe when they're enormous enough in size in size but in the woods there's all sorts of unexplained sounds the yotes is like just one of a million all the time you'll be out in the in the middle of the woods in the back country and there will be unexplained sounds this i don't have this on my list right now but it just come to my mind that the reason why i started getting these dogs that i i now own is because uh before i was hiking with a border collie a dog that i had named uh farley and i loved the dog but he just was not made out to be a good companion for the woods he'd be better like on a farm or something you know herding sheep but as far as protecting me from a booger or um, a bear or a a feral pig or something like that he just wasn't cut out for it the reason why I bring that up is because I had been on this backpacking trip in the middle of the wilderness the Pennsylvania wilderness by myself I'd gotten started late so we we got started in the dark we hiked for about two two hours, I reckon, before I said, man, I'm I just starting to get wore out, and I need to have energy for tomorrow, too. So we, we cut off from the trail, went down into this kind of a holler area, bushwhacked. I cleared out some leaves and got a fire going right there in the middle of the forest. Now, when I'd done this, I must have sat down right in the middle of some creature's territory. There's some creature was claiming that territory as its own and here we come in the middle of the dark and I've got a fire going and I hear this thing moving around our camp 
I hear it moving around all around the, the, the outside of where the light from my fire could penetrate. And one minute I'd hear it over here, next second I'd hear it over there. And, you know, I'm not too worried about it. I'm continuing to do work, get myself rolled out and everything like that. And, but I, the whole time I'm trying to figure out what it is, just based on the sounds of its feet you know breaking through the the tree branches and stuff like that i'm listening to it and i know for one thing it it ain't small but it ain't that big either it's some creature in between but i hear it moving all all around all around us and it's uh, stepping on twigs and stuff and the twigs are snapping and it was not a deer i know that because i can identify deer just by the sounds they make it was not a deer Uh, but it wasn't a fox either it wasn't a raccoon. It was a, it was a lot bigger than that, but neither was it as big as like a bear or something like that. So it was a real mystery. But I remember thinking to myself, well, if it were, and I'm start, I'm laying down now, getting ready to go to sleep, but this, the noise of this thing come, keep coming closer and closer to my camp, but I can't see it, keeps waking me up. And I remember telling myself, well, if it were anything to be worried about, my, my dog here, Farley, would surely be letting me know about it so i'd expect him to growl or to bark or something like that and so i I turn to get a look at him at what he's doing he is he is behind me and he is pressed up against me and he is trembling like a leaf and (laughs) so it really did not help my confidence any to have that particular type of dog with me in the woods i mean i'm no joke it was that night as I was going to sleep, thinking, this guy's no help at all, that I I decided that when I got home, I was going to look into uh, another type of dog and get myself a permanent uh, particular type of dog as a companion for the woods. And, and that's how I've ended up with these dogs I have now, which I call the Bradbury dogs. And they are a cross between a, a Ladner, Blackmouth Cur, and a Louisiana Catahoula Leopard Dog, and they have all the qualities that I just love as a woodsman. Best kept secret in the world, these Bradbury Dogs. So, you're always going to hear like these strange sounds in the middle of the woods, and you just kind of have to figure out which ones are the sounds to be worried about, which are the sounds not to be worried about. I'll tell you this, 99.9% of the sounds in the woods are sounds that you do not have to be worried about. So it, it'll keep a lot of people up at night, but for those of us who know better, we just sleep right through it. As far as Widowmakers go, my brother and I and another friend of ours, we were on the third night of a long backpacking trip in the mountains. This is 10 years ago. And uh, all up around the fire, it had been raining for days. And my brother had to take a big old... Uh, <laughs> he had to do some meditating, let's say, down in the woods. So he split off from the rest of us. He went down down into this ravine to get plenty far away from everybody and everything so that he could do his meditating. And uh, as he's down there taking a squat, we're still at the fire, all talking and just engaged in conversation. And all of a sudden, we hear the loudest crash. It sounded like, it sounded like, I don't know how to describe it the loudest crash you can imagine in the woods. I mean, it was either the just the most gigantic branch in the world broke off and went crashing down through the woods or the entire tree just toppled over. It was it was enormous this sound. And it happened right down there where my brother was, down there taking a a meditation break. 
and uh, we start screaming down there for, hey, you okay? You okay? He comes trudging back up through the woods. He's fine, but he said he'd had some uh, constipation, and he was down there struggling with that constipation until he said that crash occurred. He said it scared him so bad that it cured him of his constipation in a second, like that. And man, we laughed and laughed and laughed about that. So, but that's pretty terrifying, you know. If that were to happen right next to you or something like that, it'd be pretty terrifying. And now that I think about it, I know a place in the woods uh, on property that I, that I own in the Appalachian backcountry. I went hiking through there a few years ago and was surprised to see this enormous oak tree which was perfectly it looked perfectly alive and it was probably a hundred years old this tree it was completely toppled over now did the wind help i'm sure the wind helped but there had to be some other things involved in that it was not a dead tree it had to have been something about the soil like the erosion of the soil where it was sitting or something like that but it come right down on top of play, a place in the woods where i've slept in that spot many a night and so, looking for widow makers, looking to make sure that the tree is not dead and stuff like that, is not a surefire way of not getting a tree or a branch dropped on you. It's just, it improves your odds greatly. Okay, number 15. Not snakes in general, but venomous snakes. In, in my area, it's rattlesnakes and copperheads. Timber rattlesnakes, I should say. Out west here in the United States, they've got uh, their own uh type of rattlesnake here in the east eastern side of the united states it's rattlesnakes and, and copperheads um, speaking of my dog bradbury when he was two years old got him out in the woods that evening i was setting up camp and i saw it looked like he had like he had was carrying something in his jaw i la- i remember i even laughed like a big plug of tobacco or something he was sitting by the fire that i had made i got up and i went to get a better look at the at his jaw saw that he had been bit by a timber rattlesnake now what had happened was i was collecting firewood and stuff like that that night to get this fire going and i remember him being up on the side of the hill with me poking his nose uh, there there was these small rock outcrops and i remember him poking up his nose up underneath those rock outcrops kind of exploring around just you know doing what dogs do i knew immediately what had happened was that when he was doing that a timber rattlesnake had struck out and hit him right on the cheek there. Now that was pretty terrifying for me because he was a 65 pound dog and I knew that there was just no way for me to carry him up out of that holler. I was, I was miles in and down in this deep, deep holler and uh, I just knew I'd, I'd never be able to carry him out of there. Either he was going to pull through on his own or I was going to have to figure out some way to bury him down there. and. And I, I was in love with this dog already, and that was terrifying. It was a terrifying night for me to uh, watch him kind of go in and out of consciousness, and I, I didn't think he was going to make it, but he pulled through. I'll tell you, these dogs are hardy. a hardy breed, these Bradbury dogs. Number 13 would have to be near-fatal accidents. When I was a child, I had thousands of uh, Appalachian wilderness that was my playground, my, my playground, my brother's playground, my, my cousin's playground. And that's where we spent all of our time. We had some friends come and visit us. Their names were uh, Eugene, I call him Yui, and his younger brother Kelly. And we took Eugene, my brother and I took Eugene and Kelly 
down into the deep woods where we often played and we had a, a grapevine down there in the woods or just a vine that we would swing on so we had pulled up to the top of a of the mountain or the hill and then there was this deep deep holler between us and the other side of the the mountain or the hill and we would swing on that vine all the way across that holler and be able to deposit ourselves on the other side of the holler again we're very young kids at this time i might have been 12 12 somewhere around there the worst part is my my dad had gone down there and he said man i don't think that's safe you boys better not be uh probably should stop swinging on that but i mean it was so much fun that we paid him no heed and so when our friends come to visit they were visiting from out of state and spending the week with us we got them down there and that was what we were doing like every day we were just spending hours swinging on that vine across the holler and then we started playing a truth or dare it was like a a truth or dare swinging vine game and the way you'd play it is you'd say truth or dare and then as you did the dare or the truth you had to swing you had to be swinging on the vine when you did it so let's say you pick truth all right you go grab the vine you go swinging across the holler and somebody shouts out have you have you ever kissed Susie on the on the lips and then they have to tell you the truth while they're swinging through the air I mean you're way up above the ground too I mean it when you get out across the middle of this holler I'd say you were probably no joke 50 60 feet above the ground above the bottom of the holler and I should also mention that this holler at the bottom of it was a, a small stream so we're playing truth or dare and uh, it gets to be Kelly's turn my buddy Yui's younger brother and truth or dare and he says uh, dare and so we said okay we dare you to pull your pants down all the way down to your ankles pull your pants down and, sw- and swing across the, the holler on the vine so he had to do it because it was that was the rules of the game. He pulls his pants all the way down to his ankles, grabs a hold of the vine, goes swinging across, and he gets halfway across, and the vine breaks out of the top of the tree. And he falls 50 feet down to the bottom of that ravine. Now you say, that's impossible, it would have killed him. Well, you got to remember how these vines work. They're, they're all tentacled up into the tree branches, so it didn't break away all at once. It it kind of slid through the branches and deposited him at the bottom of the ravine. If it had just snapped in two and he had fallen like that in a free fall, yes, it would have killed him. But it it just pulled and and it dropped him down into the ravine and he still hit the, the ground hard down into that stream and it wasn't over yet. When this happened, one of the trees that this uh, vine was entangled with the top of it broke out like the top I'd say 20 feet of this tree broke out and it twisted and fell like a javelin fell right down and it it punctured the ground it went into the ground like a javelin a mere inches inches from his head that was terrifying it still scares me to think about that it would have impaled him into the ground, this thing. And um, it's just a terrifying, terrifying experience. It's a wonder that country boys grow up into adulthood at all. But that's a true story, and it was terrifying. Number 12, most terrifying moments in the woods for me has to be weirdos and strangers. 
my backpack in the uh, Appalachian Trail in Maryland. We we got started kind of late in the evening. It was daylight when we started. By the time we got up to the top of the mountain ridge and we're actually hiking through along the Appalachian Trail, uh, it was pitch dark. And we were looking for a shelter up there. There was a shelter on the map that we knew should be up there. We should be able to find it. And it was so windy and cold that night. We did it in late November. We couldn't find it. Like uh, the, the flashlights we were using, the throw of the flashlights were not penetrating the forest well enough. And we were having a hard time finding this shelter where we knew it had to be. We, we knew the general area where it had to be. Couldn't find it. Well, there was somebody already up there, a guy who was all by himself, and it was a weird circumstance. He got a fire going, and eventually we did get to see the light of that fire. The shelter was set off a ways from the, the main trail, and because he was starting that fire, we, we managed to locate the shelter and get over there. He was all by himself and acting weird, just a weird vibe about this guy. Older man probably oh I reckon he's probably about 50 mid 50s something like that and uh, you know now that I'm telling you about it another thing that was weird about it is he didn't really know how to 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 maintain a fire like what is a guy doing in the woods who, who does not seem to be able to manage himself in the woods doesn't even really seem to know how, the proper way to get a fire going or to to keep a fire going and how to feed a fire so it's just a lot of weird vibes coming off this guy and the more we got to talking to him you know, he seemed friendly and everything but we just couldn't make sense of why he was even up there like he, he was not a backpacker he wasn't a woodsy type of woodsman uh, he seemed like a city guy and he was up there at the shelter all by himself in the middle of the night and you know, I wish I could say that there were these dead giveaways, that he was an axe murderer or something like that. I, I never got that. But <clears throat> to this day, it's there's a lot of questions that I have in my mind about this guy. I slept light that night. I'll tell you that. I, didn't, I did not feel comfortable that whole night. We did sleep there at the shelter, but we slept up in the top upper part of it. And he was down in the lower part of it. And, and some other people had showed up too. So that kind of put me at ease. There it wasn't just us and the guy but even when the other people showed up later I asked them the guy kind of put off some weird vibes didn't he and they said yeah yeah he did can't really make heads or tails of that guy like what's he even doing up here it's not clear like you'd ask him what he's doing up here it wasn't clear what he was doing up there uh, he couldn't really give you a straight answer about it so there was a lot of suspicious kind of weirdy stuff around him so that's that's my number 12 just weird people out in the woods that you're not certain about is can be pretty terrifying number 11 goes back to spirits or haints my grandpa had moved a trailer out in the middle of the woods out there near where i lived growing up where my parents still live he had moved a trailer out there and uh, it was just kind of going to be his escape place like he could get away from town and stuff like that and go and spend a weekend here and there in this trailer but he moved it out there, and then it really just kind of set, set empty most of the time. Uh, my cousins started taking their girlfriends out there. So we're getting up into our teenage years now. I think I was 17 at this point or something like that. And so my, my oldest cousin and some of my other cousins, they'd take their, their girlfriends out to the trailer out in the woods to get their kicks. If I were to show you the area where this trailer used to be, 
and you were to think of being out there with your girlfriend or something all by yourself, no electricity, nothing like that. It's just an empty trailer with no plumbing or anything like that. Um, it, it would give you the spooks. It'd give you the heebie-jeebies. And this is a true story. I'm up one night. The rest of my family is asleep. And uh, I'm up doing... I was learning Spanish at the time. So I was up very late uh, studying Spanish. Probably 2 o'clock in the morning. Bear in mind, where I grew up, there is no body. It's just us out there in the middle of the, the forest in the Appalachian backcountry. 2 o'clock in the morning, there comes this pounding on our front door. That scared the hoochie-coochie out of me. Just pounding on my door in the middle of the night. Now, if, if you're in the middle of the city and that happens, it makes perfect sense. There's people all around you. When it happens to you in the middle of nowhere, and I'm not talking about tapping, I'm talking about pounding. It's, it's, that's terrifying because you're thinking, like, who, who is even out here? So I, I approached the door with, you know, a lot of suspicion. Turned the porch light on. I'm looking through the windows to see if I can see who it is. And lo and behold, there is my cousin Jeremy with a girl standing on the front porch, trembling, both of them, trembling like leaves. And she is crying. She's got tears just streaking down her face. So I open the door real quick, thinking that maybe they're in danger. Open the door. They, they don't even wait to be invited in. They just come in. I said, what on earth is going on with you guys? Now, my parents are still asleep. Uh, how, I don't know. They're still asleep. I, what on earth is going on with you guys? And she's bawling, and he's, he's trying to tell me the story, but, I mean, his whole body is shaking, and his eyes are as big as saucer plates. He says, that, that house down there is evil. And I said, what house? He says, that pops trailer down there. I said, is that where you guys are coming from? Now, to get to our house from that trailer, they had to go through the dark woods. There's no street lights, nothing like that. They had to, and they didn't have any flashlights on them. So they're running through the dark woods in the pitch dark between that trailer and our house. I said, what do you mean that the house is evil? He says, there's a spirit down there, a demon. And he gives me the details. Actually, by this point, my mom had woke up. She comes in. She's like, what's going on? I said, Jeremy and this girl here they say that they've had that there was a spirit down in the house so he's telling my mom the details she's like are you on drugs he's like i swear to god to you, i am not on anything not on anything so here's here's the story and that by the way i'm so terrified now when he starts telling this story it's like i was already terrified but as he tells this story i just get more and more frightened he says they're they're lying in the bed there in the living room there was a a couch that my grandpa had in there that folded out into a bed and they had folded that couch out to do their dirty deeds and uh, so it was I guess after the fact they're just kind of lying there in the dark and as they're lying there they're just kind of chatting and talking and there's footsteps in the house I don't know if you folks have ever been into a, like a house trailer or not but the way that they don't have foundations most of them don't they sit up on blocks and so when you go walking down the hallway of like a trailer it can shake the whole trailer especially if you're a big man well he says they're sitting there in the dark just holding each other and talking and when it sounds like as clear as day like footsteps walking down the hallway like shaking the trailer walking through the hallway and it stops like the sound stops near the end of their bed and they're sitting there scared like what the heck was that 
And then they start telling, they start joking about it to kind of ease their nerves, I reckon. Oh, it's probably this, it's probably that. And they're laughing about it, you know, trying to, trying to ease each other's nerves. And they hear it again, but this time even more pronounced. It's, it's shaking the whole house. Boom, 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 boom. And as it gets closer to the bed, the foot of the bed where they're at, it speeds up until it gets right there to the bottom of the bed. And, and now they're really frightened. And again, they, they wait for a second. The sound stops. They start joking around. It's probably this, probably that telling jokes to kind of ease their nerves it happens a third time but this time as it gets to the end of the bed it materializes a huge dark figure with glowing red eyes that then looms over the bed and gets right in their faces and he's trying to describe it and he's almost on tears now let me tell you something about my cousin Jeremy he is a a roughneck a roughneck Everybody in town is scared of this guy. He'll fight anybody, fight anything. He's, he's a roughneck. And he's telling this story to me and my mom. And he is trembling like a leaf, and he's on the verge of tears. And he's trying to describe this thing that materialized in the middle of the room and got right up in his face. And he said they dropped everything. They jumped out of that bed. They come running. They, were, they didn't have any shoes on. They didn't have any shoes on their feet. And I just think about the terror of that, of having an experience like that and somehow getting, you know, having the presence of mind to get to the door first. But then not only do you get to the door and you're out of of that environment, but you're kind of like out of the frying pan into the skillet, right? Because you have to hike through the complete dark woods in the middle of the night, it's like two o'clock in the morning, with no flashlight or anything, you're trying to feel your way through the forest not to bump into trees and stuff. With that experience fresh in your mind of what just happened to you, and I'm, you're surely thinking, like, there's nothing preventing that thing from following me. <laughs> so I told you, I do not believe in ghosts or haints in the sense of when you die, you don't really die, you become a, a spirit. I don't believe that. As a God-fearing person, I do, though, believe in the spirit world, and I believe in the demons, and I believe in and all that. So he telling that story, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, guess what I got to do now? Now I got to go down into my bedroom and try to sleep that night, knowing that my cousin and his girlfriend have just left that thing, and now they're in our house, and I'm sleeping that night just like, goodness gracious, that's the most terrifying thing I've ever heard of. So that's a true story. Number 10, Israeli guy. We're on the Appalachian Trail. Me, my friend Jeff, my brother Ben. And we get to a shelter. This is years ago. Get to a shelter. Like I said, I don't do the Appalachian Trail anymore. And I surely don't use shelters, other people's pre-built shelters. But on this occasion, we did. It was so rainy. So we get into the shelter. And this guy, guy we don't know all by himself comes uh, hiking on up through the trail and he comes in it's starting to get dark and we've got a good fire going by this point and he comes up and you're going to have to forgive me I'm going to, I'm going to do a what sounds to me like a foreign accent it's probably going to sound more Mexican or Spanish than anything else but I'm not trying to insult anybody it's just I'm trying to paint the picture for you of what it was like for us he comes up and, hey can I can I uh, sit next to your fire we said, yeah, come on in. 
So he come up and we started talking to him and everything. Seemed like a nice enough guy. And what we learned was that he was about to enter the Israeli military. He had just finished school and he was about to is- enter the Israeli military for like his obligational service to the military. So he had some time and he had decided to come to the U.S. and hike the Appalachian Trail. We get to talk, we get to know him and everything, and we kind of adopt him into our group. But keep in mind, we've only known him for a few hours. And so the the night gets long in the tooth, and we all start to bed down, getting ready to go to sleep. And I'm lying in this bunk in this shelter with our fire right outside the entrance of this thing. And I am just on the verge of sleep, just on the verge of sleep. When I hear this voice in the dark, and it's Boaz. This this was the guy's name, the Israeli guy. His name was Boaz. Boaz says, in the middle of this darkness, while I'm just on the verge of sleep, he says, uh, uh, excuse me, would it be okay if I ask you a question? And I kind of like wake out of my slumber. I said, uh, yeah, sure, Boaz, what is it? Well, he says, I'm just sitting here thinking about the death penalty in the United States. How does that work exactly? And I said, the, the death penalty? I said, well, there are states that have it and there are states that don't have it. Oh, okay. I said, well, good night, Boaz. Good night. I roll back over. Again, I'm just on the verge of sleep and he says, uh, hey, excuse me. Now, I have so many questions about it. Uh, for example, if you kill somebody in a state that has the death penalty, but then you, let's say, flee to a state that does not have the death penalty, what happens? I said, uh, well, you know, I'm not a law expert or anything, but I think what they'd do is they would extradite you from the state that you're in to the state where the crime was committed. Oh, okay. Uh, Just one more question. Uh, Is Pennsylvania a death penalty state and I go uh, you know I'm not sure well good night Boaz good night I'll tell you (laughs) looking back at that situation or thinking back to it I don't know why on earth none of those questions raised any red flags for me but that story I'm telling you is absolutely true that is exactly the way that conversation went and I just rolled out after having that whole conversation with him this total stranger that I've only known for a couple hours I rolled right back over and went to sleep like that. Next morning, I get up. I'm over at the edge of camp taking a leak, you know, draining the old one-eyed lizard. And my brother comes up next to me. He goes, hey, how'd you sleep? And I mean, I'm in the middle of like the longest pee in the whole world. And I'm still kind of waking up myself and I, well, I slept pretty good. How'd you sleep? He says, I didn't sleep a wink. I said, what? Why not? He said, what do you mean, why not? After Boaz started asking me about the death penalty and all that stuff last night, he said, I I was just on the verge of sleep, and then I'm like obligated for the rest of the night to keep guard. He said, I got out my my belt knife, and I slept there with my belt knife right in my hand all night long just in case that guy tried anything. Man, I laughed so hard because that was the first time that it occurred to me that I probably should have been a lot more suspicious about those questions. But I think, I think actually I was just so worn out from the whole day that it didn't even occur to me. And it really should have. Number nine, 
I'm backpacking down in the bottom of Grand Canyon. My first time out there, I had planned it for uh, January because it gets so hot in the canyon during summer months, even fall and spring months, it can be deathly hot down in the canyon. So I'd planned it for January, and uh, so it was snow-packed on the top. And then what happens, it's very interesting in the wintertime there at Grand Canyon. For every 2,000 feet you drop, I think the temperature rises like two or three degrees. So you start off at the top, and it's completely snow-packed. There's ice everywhere. You have to wear crampons. And then you get about halfway down, and it's still cold, but you're, you're stripping off layers, and the ice and the snow is all gone. By the time you get down to the bottom where the Colorado River is, it's like mid-60s Fahrenheit. I mean, you can be walking around in shorts and flip-flops when you get down to the very bottom, and that's in January. But it was just me and my ex-wife and another guy, a fireman from Colorado, and he was hiking down there with us, just the three of us, when we got started that day. Now, he was uh, both a fireman and a photographer. So as we're going down, he's talking to us, and we're getting to know him and everything, and turns out he's carrying a bunch of camera gear on his back. And you've you got to move so slow down the, the starts of this path because it's so narrow, and it's covered with snow and ice. And it's kind of treacherous. And there's parts of that trail where the trail is only maybe, maybe five feet wide, maybe four feet wide and less. And then on the other side, it's just a straight drop-off. There's like a 2,000, 3,000-foot drop just on the side of the trail, right there on the side. There's no handrails or anything like that, you know. And we're walking along, and uh, he's up ahead of me. And there was this moment where, in my mind, I'm watching him, and I'm thinking that he doesn't... I've seen people who are more steady on their feet than this guy. And I'm thinking about all the snow and the ice, and I'm just thinking, like, what a tragedy that'd be if, if he were to lose his balance. I mean, that's entirely possible. With the way he's carrying all that weight on his back and trying to balance things in his hands and stuff, I, I thought, you know, it's not entirely out of the question that he'd lose his balance and go falling off the side of of this enormous drop-off that's right next to our trail. Telling you what, as soon as I thought it, it happened. He lost his balance and almost went over the side. And I mean, my heart stopped in my chest. What went through my brain in that very second was, do I have time to reach him? And part of me was wanted to sprint forward and try to help him, but you see... I have to try to do it in the most safe, safest way possible for my own self. Like, if, if I move too wild, I could pitch my own self over the side of Grand Canyon. So there's that's all going through my head. Can I safely sprint toward him and try to help him? As I'm thinking this, he regains his... He seemingly regains his balance. And when he did... I resolved in that very moment, if that happens again, I'm not even going to think about it. I'm just going to lurch forward and try to get to him. Well, what had happened was when it seemed like he'd gotten his balance, his pack had, had not shifted correctly. So there was his pack, the pack on his back was still moving, even though his body had regained balance, the pack had not caught up to that yet. The pack did catch up to that. It threw him off balance again and again. Went to fling him off the side of that that uh, path, uh, you know, 3,000-foot drop. And that was what I did. I didn't even hesitate that time. I lurched forward as fast as I safely could, and I grabbed a hold of him and re-steadied him. 
but no joke no joke he could have went right over the side of the canyon on that section of the trail with the snow in the eyes and it scared it scared the holy snot out of me it was terrifying number eight unexplained events uh, this is actually number eight and number seven on one occasion I had set up a lean-to back deep in the woods where I, where I had grown up and uh, I had a fire set out front of this lean-to and I had the fire going for a while and it was uh, toward the evening of the day and then I decided that I was going to take a nap and I didn't want to leave it was in the middle of the summer I didn't want to leave the fire going while I was asleep so I poured water all over the fire and I completely doused it and I moved all of the fuel away from the fire so there's nothing there to burn and I took a nap in my lean-to when I woke up and mind you nobody knew I was down there I didn't tell anybody where I was going to be or anything like that I was way out so I had this wonderful late afternoon nap and I slowly wake up to the realization that the fire is going again and I sit up and look at the fire and there's a TP fire there. All the fuel, there's there's all this fuel there. And the fire is going like I like I like I just set it on like I just got it going. It was like a brand new fire going there. And I didn't do it. There was nobody with me. There was nobody around. Nobody knew I was there. And to this day, I don't know how that happened. But that's a true story. Woke up from a nap after I had completely put out the fire and made sure there was no way for it to get started again moved all the fuel away wake up to a perfectly healthy fire going right there with fuel and everything in a tp fashion and the fire and the fire going completely unexplainable another one what happened when i was younger uh, we were out in the woods at a lake my family and i and we were visiting um, some relatives who were camping there and they told me about an old church that was up in the woods. It was an outdoor church. And to get up to it, there was a, a path that went around like the, the edge of this woods. And there were all of these uh, individual paths. So like, how do I describe it? A bunch of connector paths. So like you're in the park, right? To get up into the woods, there were all these paths leading up to this main path, which just went around the whole edge of the entire forest so this is the way it worked out in my memory I went up the path stepped into the woods by myself took a look around turned around went right back down the path that I had just gone up which uh, when I say that this was a path I don't mean like I walked for 10 minutes let me try to describe it better this is just like an entrance path into the woods so it's not it, it's not even 50 feet long it just it leads from the park up into the woods so I walked up this path into the woods took a few steps into the woods looked around just to kind of see if I could just spot that that outdoor that old outdoor church in the woods I didn't see it so I turned around right in the spot where I was standing I, and I did not wonder once I got up there and I walked out that path back out like towards the park and the parking lot and everything like that and I was in an entirely different part of the park. Now, it, what's the explanation for that? It could be, um, 
I think I was 11 or 12 at the time. It could be that I'm just remembering the thing wrong or that I misinterpreted the the chain of events wrong. But I remember completely being bewildered in the moment and thinking like, how? what did just happen? What just happened? Where am I? And I mean, I was completely lost and turned around. Uh, but to this day, that's the way I remember it is exactly that. that. I walked up the trail, took a few steps into the woods, stood in that same spot so as to not get turned around, just looked around, turned right back around, and walked right down the path I had just come up, and I was in an entirely different part of the park. Completely unexplained event to this day. I have no explanation for it. Number six, surprises, like getting surprised. There was a day that I was hiking down through a deep portion of the Appalachian woods, uh, middle of summer. I was getting ready to go down into this deep holler, and this was an area of the woods I'd never been in before. And I stopped next to a tree. And I was leaning against the tree, catching my breath and kind of like regaining my strength because I'd been hiking for a long, long time. Just kind of looking around the woods and just kind of soaking it all in and everything. And I look up to my left. Uh, so there's a branch coming out right next to my head from this tree that I'm leaned up against, just kind of taking a rest. And there was curled the biggest friggin' black snake I've ever seen in my life. It was enormous. And that was terrifying. Not because the, the snake was particularly dangerous or anything like that. Not because I have a, a fear of snakes. I really don't. But the idea that something like that can be right next to you, inches away from your ear, and you don't know it's there. So really, the, you know, the longer you spend out in the woods, the more you learn to be completely aware of your surroundings. You don't lean against, a, to this day, I don't lean against a tree without inspecting the tree. I don't even like put my hand out against a tree without making sure where my hand is going on that tree and what is there. Uh, number five, lightning. I'm terrified of lightning. It's really, truly the only thing I'm really scared of out in the woods, and it's because it, when it kills you, the messages in your body don't even have time to reach your brain to let you know that, you're, that you've been struck by lightning. So it, it means that you're dead before you even realize, have a, have a chance to realize that you're dead. So lightning. Um, on one occasion, uh, on many, many occasions, I've been caught in vicious storms, vicious lightning strikes happening all around me. Um, I don't always have the, the benefit of being inside of a shelter when this happens. Sometimes I just have to find like a, a thicket of trees. You know, you hear that you don't want to get under a tree when in a lightning storm. Well, that's true. If it's the only tree out in an open field, you don't want to do that. But in the woods, what you want to do is you want to find a thicket of trees that are of similar height and just kind of get in between the middle of there and you want to uh, maybe get on the back of your backpack, you know, uh, sit on the balls of your feet, on the back of your backpack, kind of insulate you from the ground and things like that. Happened many times. It's never fun. Number four, both of my grandfathers fought in World War II. Both of them fought at the Battle of Normandy. My grandpa, my granddaddy on my dad's side told a story one time which has terrified me to this day. 
during the war, he was uh, come up on a stream in the woods, and uh, he was dying of thirst. Didn't have any water with him, didn't have any water in his canteen. And the first thing he did was he threw down his gear and bent over that creek or that stream and started, uh, you know, dr- drinking himself full because he was very, very thirsty. And uh, uh, he finishes uh, drinking. He stands up and looks upstream just a, just a click and just right there, uh, lying in the stream that he just finished drinking out of, was a dead soldier with his guts all blowed out uh, in the stream. So that's pretty terrifying. And that's why before you drink out of a stream (laughs) not that you're going to find a dead German soldier or anything with his guts in the stream hopefully but uh, what you want to do is you want to make sure you look upstream to see if there's any any kind of contamination any signs of animal activity around there and stuff like that but that's a pretty terrifying story uh, for me because it still stuck with me after all these years. I mean, I, I remember him telling that story. Uh, I, I was pretty young. I, I probably would have been seven or eight or something when, when I remember him telling that story, and I've just never forgotten it. Number three, I've told you in the past I had a parasite under my skin on one occasion where I foolishly ignored my instincts and I drank from a water source, which I should have known better than to do, and uh, a month passed. It was when my daughter was being born. And I come down with a heavy fever. And I thought I was getting the flu. And then the flu never developed. That's that's how When I get sick, that's how it always happens. It starts with, like, congestion, a sore throat, leads to a fever. And it just goes, it always follows the same pattern. On this occasion, I got the high fever, but I didn't have the congestion. And I didn't have the sore throat. And so, after a few days, I started thinking, like, what's going on here? My body must be fighting off some in, uh, infection or something and I realized I had been scratching at my belly and that I had had a rash on my belly I took a look at it and it was starting to form into the shape of like a worm underneath my skin and that was when I realized I had put two and two together and I remembered drinking out of that water source I knew exactly what was going on and that was pretty I wouldn't say terrifying but it was gross and uh, the way that I handled that was that I just didn't take anything for my fever I said I figure what my body's trying to do is it wants to burn that thing out of there and every time I take medicine to lower my fever I'm preventing it from doing that so I just stopped taking medicine my fever soared very high and it was like that for three days and yes it was torturous but by the end of it my body had killed that parasite and uh, I went my everything went back to normal number two this is not really a terrifying thing, but I included it on my list anyway. Terrifying thing about being in the woods is moments of loneliness. When you're lying there in the dark in the middle of the night and you start thinking about your family. You know, I think about my daughter particularly. particularly, And it gets me all kind of melancholy and blue. And, and actually, it kind of makes your brain play tricks on you. I mean, you start thinking about worst-case scenarios, don't you? Like, man, what if what if I fell and broke my neck or something out here and my family just never found me and my daughter never knew what happened to me? That would be, thoughts like that are terrible. Fortunately, nothing like that has ever happened to me. I hope it ever, never does. And then, you know, when you get out of those moments where your brain's doing that to you, you think the likelihood of that is just 
so small, you know, and you, and you really can't live a life based on fear like that. You, you still got to live. You still got to do things that feed your soul. And uh, so I, I try to snap myself out of that when when I have those moments out in the middle of the woods. I, it just happened to me this past winter. It was so cold in the uh, environment and the circumstances were so dangerous. I really had to make sure that I was making the best decisions out there to stay safe and everything. But there was there were a couple nights where I was lying there thinking about my little girl and thinking, boy, if you, I, I have to be responsible out here. I really have to be responsible and careful. I cannot be careless because I have a little girl who loves her daddy and depends on him to, to come back home. Number one, my number one most terrifying moment in the woods involves a massive buck, a male deer. I had gone up onto a big mountainside to watch a sunset and I was sitting there taking her all in when I heard some movement behind me and I was all by myself right on the edge of this very very steep mountain and I turned around and this female deer comes into the uh, into the woods there just up above me and analyzing the situation later what I realized was that they could not smell me they couldn't hear me they didn't know I was there because of where I was situated but she comes in and I thought man that's beautiful and I was just ex- I was just enjoying the moment of this beautiful experience when right behind her comes the biggest buck I've ever seen in my life this enormous male deer and he's full of testosterone and all sorts of things you know and it was right right around mating season and I was so foolish about it I handled the situation very poorly I thought man this is so beautiful I just want to watch this for a minute what didn't occur to me sooner that should have occurred to me was that I'm so close to them that if they were to figure out that I was there uh, it would be a really bad situation for me you know it's it's quite one thing if as they're coming in I make myself known and then they know I'm there and they and they feel safe enough like they've got room to act and get out of that situation and stuff but I had allowed myself to get into a very dangerous situation where they're now they're they are right there I mean I'm not kidding you there were moments where I could have reached out and touched touched them on the leg and that is very dangerous you know uh, speaking of like bears that's the most dangerous situation to be in with a bear is when you surprise one in close proximity to it you never want to get yourself into a situation like that. That's why you call out when you're going into areas where there might be a lot of bear. You don't want to be like a ninja moving through the woods. You you want to let your presence be known. And here I had just foolishly uh, kind of caught up in the moment, allowed that to happen to me and allowed myself to get into that situation. And there I am. And then I remember having this conversation with myself, like, what do I do now? Like, if that buck comes to attack me what am I going to do there's nowhere for me to go I mean the best I could do is just toss myself over the side of this mountain and hope that I don't die from that but he's still going to probably come down the best he can and try to gore me and stuff so it it was a hairy situation and, and I'm thinking like should I just remain quiet and see if they go away or should I make myself known it was just a no win win like if I wait there and hope that they don't discover me 
when they finally, if they finally do discover that I'm there, it might be even worse than if I just kind of let them know I was there. So what I eventually ended up doing, because they, they were going into a mating ritual right there, right there next to me, and they didn't know I was there. I mean, imagine how you'd feel. <laughs> you know, you're playing Barry White, and you're play, playing Barry White music, and getting ready to do the deed and somebody clears their throat and you look over there and in the corner of your hotel room is I don't know <laughs> oh somebody with some binoculars and a notepad like observing the whole thing you know you wouldn't like that either so what I ended up doing was I cleared my throat <clears throat> I let them kind of move away from me a little bit and I <clears throat> cleared my throat and man that that buck he perked up real quick and when he saw me he was not happy he started stomping and snorting and charging at me and uh, I did the same thing I did with that uh, mountain lion I I backed up subservient all right I'm sorry I'm sorry and I backed up but I just backed down the mountain I did not take my eyes off him uh, I was ready at any moment that I needed to, to just literally just sling myself over the side of the mountain and just roll and fall and try to get away in that way if I had to but I didn't have to so you know I'm not certain that that wouldn't have been my number one most terrifying moment if I had taken the time to put these things in order uh, but I didn't it just worked out that way I was pretty scared I, I felt stupid and that's the thing like if you poor judgment when you have a moment of poor judgment like that the scariest thing about it is that there's no turning back you you were in the situation you were in that you've allowed yourself to get into and and now you just really got to try to to make the best decisions you can from that point on there's there's no starting over so it's pretty scary uh for those of you who are, don't have a lot of familiarity with the woods and stuff you may think well it's a deer how dangerous is a deer they're very dangerous it's more dangerous to corner a buck like that without any sort of protection it, that's more dangerous I think than than a, than a bear any day of the week uh, they'll gore you, they'll chase you down they'll stomp you into the ground uh, they're very dangerous so there it is folks, my 20 most terrifying moments in the world uh, in the woods I hope that uh, you'll join us over there on Locals or here in the comments share some of your own terrifying moments. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you guys in the next episode.